0: This is Cause Correction, a podcast from Doha Debates. I'm Nella Hedayat and in season two, we're focusing on polarisation. In each episode, I explore a topic that's dividing us. I talk to people with a range of perspectives on an issue and I try to challenge myself to understand positions that aren't necessarily comfortable for me. So far this season, we've looked at things like politics, religion and racial divides. Today, we're looking at the generational gap and how it relates to wealth. What may have felt like a tiny fissure has turned into a crack, into a gulf, and is now, quite positively, a cavernous, gaping hole of a divide, which seems to be growing bigger and, frankly, more hostile by the day. We hear it all around us,
1: almost every day, from... Are millennials spoiled babies? The accusation this time came in a video that has gone viral.
2: Generation Snowflake. It's a label thrown around a lot lately, but what exactly does it mean? To this. okay, boomer. (laughs) It's the millennials' newest clapback directed at baby boomers.
1: They're baby boomers. (laughs) They went from love is all you need to whoever winds up with the most toys wins. Um,
0: And even this. You
1: ever take a smartphone away from a 20-something? They don't know what to do. They look like they got hit with a shovel. It's like, I should have learned how to talk to people.
0: Belt buckle phone cases and internet memes aside, there's a serious cost to not focusing on the generational gap, especially when it comes to building wealth. And taking a look at the math, the numbers paint a picture that cannot be avoided and needs to be changed. For example, in the US, a millennial earns 20% less than what a baby boomer used to earn at the same age. Also, as of 2020, boomers and the silent generation held, get this, 70% of the country's wealth. And these numbers are echoed across nations around the world. This big divide is causing a massive shift in our society, as many younger generations are saddled with burdens and difficult choices their parents and grandparents couldn't dream of having to deal with. Later on, I'll speak with Astra Taylor, a documentarian and activist who's trying to raise the alarm about the sweeping impact debt has on young people.
2: People are not in debt because They live beyond their means. They're in debt because they are denied the means to live.
0: I'll also talk to Jayatma Vikramanayaka of Sri Lanka, who holds the title of UN Envoy on Youth. She'll talk about what it will take to change a
3: system that's largely rigged to keep wealth in the hands of older generations. We have to also find ways how to work through the systems to enter into the formal political arena if we are to sustain that change.
0: But first, it's one thing to talk about the wealth gap and it's another thing to see it firsthand. Perhaps the most acute example of this is in the housing market. Do you remember the 50s and 60s with the TV shows like Leave it to Viva or Bewitched, where the dad would come home from a day at the office and his wife would greet him with a warm smile and have dinner ready? Hi, dear. Hi. Thought we'd have a chocolate mousse for
3: supper.
1: It's the wrong time of year. Moose are out of season.
0: (laughs) If you're not laughing at this, you should be. The gender roles here are frankly ridiculous. But also because the idea of one guy working and supporting his entire family who live in this big house seems completely unrealistic. In fact, just owning any type of dwelling seems like a fantasy for many millennials and Gen Zers. To prove this, I recently hit the streets of London to do some house hunting and I brought along a special guest. My name is Fatima Hidayat, and I do everything my sister tells me to. Fatima is 26 years old, just around the age when many young people a generation ago were starting to enter the housing market. So we're driving around an area called Hampstead um, and you and I have grown up in this area. Yeah. Hampstead is a quintessentially beautiful part of North London. In the summer, we grew up going to the park, picking gooseberries and having snowball fights down the street in the winter. But it also has famous actors, writers and, uh, well, rich people coming out of every muse and cul-de-sac. It's very pretty. It's very what the rest of London tries to be (laughs) but doesn't have the space to be. I feel like this was built before housing was an issue. (laughs) Yeah. As we drive around, it seems that parking was going to be as hard to find as an affordably priced flat. Oh my God, this woman is going to attack me. I need to reverse. I'm going to hit the car. Please go back. Yes. Oh my God. Wow. But eventually we found a spot. How long? Let's just say an hour. Oh my god, it's so expensive. <laughs> we walked down the fashionable street and eventually found the right house. It's like a mini hogwarts. <laughs> it looks like a castle. It's got turrets. Our estate agent or realtor was already there waiting for us. I think Fiv is inside. I
1: like I know. Hello, hi, hi. one <laughs> sec. Come in me. Okay, oh, thank you.
0: Viv is Vivian Harris. She's been selling property in London for decades. When we make it to the flat, we catch her on the phone working on what sounds to me like made up sums of money, but to her was an average day in selling houses in Hampstead. You
1: know, I mean, again, we've had something in Kenwood at over six million. They sold it was slightly under what I thought it was worth, so they were probably 100, 150 under where they should have been on price. Oh, God. But after
0: a minute, she hung up and we started our tour. Oh, which way should we
1: go? I'd start in the front, I think, probably the best place, and then we can work our way around. Yes. It's got a
0: quirky central London charm. It's about the size of three parking spaces, if we're being generous. A tiny kitchen, the floors don't lie flat, and it's listed as a one or two bedroom, as if even the apartment layout can't decide what it's meant to be, a home or a shoebox the previous owners have done an amazing job making every square foot count.
1: Um, The people who lived here were very clever in terms of use of space, so they've made loads of storage, so in fact they've dropped the ceiling there so you can get your suitcases and things up there. Oh
0: wow, that's actually quite a genius move. I looked over at Fatima. She seemed to be enjoying taking all of it, the little there was, in. The tour and the engineering ingenuity of the previous owners to save space are neat but I can tell she's holding back on getting her hopes up, and for good reason. Viv hit us with a price tag.
1: Um, It's one of the most affordable that we have in Hampstead. And we've got some interest on it currently. Um, Asking price is just under $600,000, $595,000.
0: For our American listeners, that translates to about $830,000. And listen to this. Today, buying an average house will cost most Britons about seven times their average salary but in 1997 it was only about three and a half times so it's twice as hard to buy a house based on your wages and for fortima buying becomes virtually impossible do you think you'll be able to ever buy a home where you want where you grew up where you feel like you have roots and and where you deserve to live do you think that you'll be able to do that
2: um no just simply put no
0: I I enjoy every moment of living at home for that reason because I know that when I move out I probably won't be living in more central to London. I'll have to move out, I'll have to probably look outside London, so it's a massive shame. And this is at the heart of the wealth gap today. It's not just that young people like my sister don't make as much as generations past, But they can't afford the inflated prices of the houses in the neighbourhoods they grew up in when they become adults. They don't even see the way their parents lived as obtainable in their whole lifetime. It is what it is and this is how it is. And I don't see it ever changing. I talked to Vivian about this.
1: It's really upsetting. Uh, You know, and I do feel sorry for the young people today. It's really, really difficult. And unless you've got family members or an inheritance or somebody who is prepared to help you out, I honestly don't know how young people get on the property ladder.
0: And as the children of refugees, we did not have the bank of mum and dad to give us a helping hand. Successive governments have tried to reverse this trend. In the UK, they've trotted out things like making it more expensive for foreign investors to buy houses up or things like part-buy, part-rent schemes to ease the home ownership gap. To little avail. Ultimately, Vivian says the heart of the problem comes down to supply, where older generations keep a hold of and buy more and more of the property in the UK. It is easy to get more wealth if you have some to begin with. The writing, it seems, is on the wall. And so I've noticed that young adults have given up on traditional ways of experiencing wealth. They don't want to climb the property ladder at all. They'll settle for a couple of nice holidays abroad to put on the gram and some nice trainers or bags, which
1: seems to annoy the boomers no end there is that tilt going on now with a lot of the younger people that I talk to who go into rented properties saying, you know what, we want to live a life, we want to go on holidays, we want to go out to eat, especially after Covid we want to have a drink, we want to have fun with our friends, we're not going to put a noose around our necks
0: The fact that in just a generation, home ownership has turned from being a prized nest egg to a noose around your neck is enormous, especially as it relates to growing wealth for decades, home ownership was one of the most important ways people could start to build up equity and have a means of retirement or just possess a major asset should they encounter hard times. Generations now are being denied that safety net. Not so long ago, I bought Fatima a gag mug that said it was filled with billionaire tears. She loves it. Fatima sees the hashtag, #EatTheRich. the rich. Not only as hilarious, but also downright righteous. They're the ones who are benefiting from this huge generational wealth gap. This brings us to our next guest, Astra Taylor. Finding a way for everyone to live a decent life has been at the core of Astra's work. She's a documentary filmmaker and organises with something called The Debt Collective. That's a group that, like a labour union, bands people together. But instead of fighting for better wages and working conditions, they go to battle to win better terms for debt cancellation for their members. Astra and I found ourselves agreeing a lot, but the conversation did go in an unexpected direction. I thought we were going to focus on how we should view the rich, but she wound up taking me a step back to focus on the bigger picture. Astra told me she can sympathize with Fatima and others who, unlike their parents, aren't ever given a fighting chance to experience
2: wealth. We see, especially the younger generation, absolutely crushed by student loans. Uh, The younger generation is also crushed by medical debt. Um, We see people, you know, putting basic necessities on credit cards. And so what you have is a, a society where an increasing number of people have negative net worth. Their dream now, the American dream today is to get out of debt. It's to have zero dollars.
0: Oh my God. Is it really that bad?
2: It's really that bad. So I'm going to be even more morbid. There was a statistic that came out before the pandemic that said the average American person dies $62,000 in debt. So this is really, I mean, this is a problem too, because debt isn't just it's, it's not just money you owe. There's all this research that shows it stresses you out. It makes people sicker. Uh, it has psychological effects. And the thing is, you know, it didn't used to be this way. What's really unfair is that we have, you know, people who are going to college and they're you know, trying to get ahead in life and they're graduating with 30, 40, 50, sometimes 100, sometimes $200,000 of debt, but their parents didn't do that. There's certain economic and social relations that were just part of the society at that time. So, you know, in terms of economic equality in the United States, it was just a way more economically egalitarian times. Like union membership was way higher. You could go to college basically for free or you could work a minimum job and pay for it. So I think it's just important to actually depersonalize the debates between the generations and just look at the social conditions and what's changed in the economy.
0: Can you talk to me a little bit about how generational differences sit within this wheelhouse of wealth and, and accumulation? Like to be rich kind of means to be old, right?
2: Generally speaking, you know, uh, the older generation has has way more wealth. And that's because they were able to buy property at a time when it was more affordable. And also their mortgages, their so their, their loans were subsidized by government programs after the Uh, World War II and the uh, New Deal period. And so then you have a younger generation that just in general, the younger generation is more diverse racially. They're poorer. Uh, And they just, they have, you know, a lot of them have negative assets because they have student loan debt, because they have medical debt, and because wages have stagnated. Again, this is the big problem is that they're also working at jobs Mm -hmm. where they're just paid less, you know, the value of what they earn is less than it used to be. So there's a definite generational dimension. And what it means is in the United States, that we have really robust welfare programs for old people. So we have, again, Social Security, we have, uh, we have Medicaid, so basically healthcare for, you know, people who are in their sixties, seventies, eighties, and beyond, but what happens is that you know young people aren't getting the benefit of these programs. So there's it's not just about income and wealth, it actually becomes about political power. So for me, it's about going after this economic system and we can't all be the rich.
0: But here's a little secret. By some standards, I'm one of them. I am the rich. I guess why this issue is so personal for me is that I feel guilt. Guilt. That I hit the jackpot in a career that's afforded me luxuries like buying a house, having a car and affordable debt that many of my friends and even my own siblings seem unlikely to obtain. Astra can relate to that feeling of having hit the jackpot. She grew up in a modest household in Arizona, but her economic status changed overnight when she married a literal rock star. Her husband was in the successful indie band, Neutral Milk Hotel.
2: You know, I'm affluent too. The point is that people shouldn't have to marry a rock star or happen to have bought Bitcoin at the right moment (laughs) to be able to live a decent life, right? Mm -hmm. Um, These things were socially provisioned. They can be again. Right. So I totally agree. We should define what you know being wealthy means for us personally. And what, what do okay. I care about? What's prosperity to me? But the fact is, if there's some trillionaires out there determining, you know, whether or not we address climate change, that that that's like an objective reality we have to contend with. And I think try to resist and change.
0: Astra, it could be that. Young people are spending all of their money on avocado toasts, on holidays to Dubai, on brand new iPhones, and, and they're just not spending that money responsibly. Um, they're not saving, they don't care to save, they're just being frivolous, and it's more important to look
2: rich than to be um, economically safe. Avocado toast is good. I mean it tastes good. I love the avocado toast is, you know, the the bane of your generation. I mean, I I'm I'm 40, so you know, I'm I'm too old for avocados, but it's I find it hilarious because it's these people who, you know, are acting like they're so economically sensible and they're like, "Oh, silly you. If you just didn't eat this toast, you'd have a house," <laughs> you know, and you'd have a good paying job. And again, it ignores these macroeconomic conditions that people are in. And, you know, it's just indisputable that when people put things on their credit cards, it's generally necessities. Like a huge portion of credit card debt in the United States is is medical bills. I want to ground us in a phrase. This is a phrase that we use at the Debt Collective. People are not in debt because they live beyond their means. They're in debt because they are denied the means to live.
0: What should the um, right balance be between the personal responsibility to make sure that you're economically safe
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and this concept of redistribution of wealth.
2: I think we have to begin by getting our heads around the degree of wealth inequality, not just in the United States, but in the world, right? So people talk about the pandemic causing what's called a K-shaped recovery. And what that means is that people who were doing well before the pandemic are recovering. They're doing great, right? And the people who are struggling are being pushed further down there's a catchphrase in the United States and you know, I hope it spreads, right? Which is abolish billionaires. And what I like to say is we need to abolish billionaires before they become trillionaires. And again, the problem isn't just the obscenity of people having that much wealth while other people are literally struggling and are food insecure and housing insecure. It's that that wealth gets you political power. And that is unjust, right? Redistribution is actually not that radical when there's so much at the top. So yeah. we have to have some class war spirit in us so there's that famous quote who was was it warren buffett right and he said there's a class war and my side is winning it right so it doesn't i don't think it serves our purpose if we want to live in a in a more kind of just society i don't think it it, i don't think we can get around the fact that we're gonna have to confront this extreme inequality and say look you have to give some up you have to redistribute you have to share You know, this and maybe this really isn't yours to begin with. Um, How do we get like the old people to give us our stuff back? We do need to uh, tax it back. We need to claw back uh, this wealth and then you redistribute it, in my opinion, by investing in uh, social services. I would like to see supports for young families. Yeah. I would like to see supports for students. I would like to see, you know, public health care that was quality. I'd love to see investment in green infrastructure, and in green jobs, right? Because this is something that you know young people will have to deal with more of the consequences of climate change than someone who's in their 70s or 80s. That's just yeah. a fact. So yeah. I think you redistribute through you know productive investment in the states. I'd also like to see, you know, in uh, the state investing in uh, worker-owned businesses and sort of other ways to Uh, restructure ownership so that wealth is spread around more instead of it being just hoarded by the shareholders.
0: Astra Taylor, thank you so much for talking to me.
2: (laughs) Thank you. That was fun.
0: For our final guest today, I wanted to zoom out and get a global perspective. So I figured what better place to look than the United Nations? Jayatma Vikramanayaka is a Sri Lankan who currently holds the title of the UN Secretary General's Envoy on Youth, amplifying the needs of young people to the global institution. She received that appointment back in 2017, when she was only 26 years old. As I dialed in to speak with the youth envoy, I felt the burden of the scolding lump of guilt I was carrying about all this. I'm really hoping Jayathma, who I've spoken to and worked with in the past, can help me quell its flames.
3: I think generally there is an expectation that every new generation will lead a better life than the previous generation. I think it was the same from the silent generation to the baby boomers, to Gen X, to millennials and then to Gen Z. Even though sort of this um, expectation is there, I think particularly when it comes to the transition of wealth, but also I'd like to argue the transition of Power from baby boomers to um, Gen X and Gen Z and millennials has not been very smooth. Um, And definitely, the wealth gap that exists between these different generations, particularly between baby boomers and millennials, is quite evident. And I also feel like there is a huge frustration, particularly among millennials Mm. and Gen Z, about the world that they are being sort of left-wing. Mm,
0: so, so then, should
1: we eat the rich?
3: <laughs> I think, um, sort of, this is also a, a massive conversation that needs to happen i think in between generations as well there is a huge polarization between the generations where young people are saying you know you created a really terrible world for us you left behind a really bad world in a very bad condition for us and the older generation saying well young people are only complaining and what are you doing about it Um, i think the key is really to find where your allies are in both generations and to be able to have intergenerational conversations, intergenerational partnerships that can lead us to create the world that is best for all generations. Because when Gen Zers are protesting every Friday, calling for urgent climate action, they're not asking for a better world just for themselves. They're asking for a better world for all of us. So I think it's very important Important that we try to move away from this polarization that sometimes also is being created through mainstream media, fake news, and all these misinformation campaigns in order to really understand who are our friends, who are our allies, and how do we work across and among generations to bring about the change that we really need to bring?
0: Let's focus on the global south for a minute. Young people are like. We don't like the system. The system isn't working. The farmers in India, the climate change activists around the world. The way that large companies and governments often react to young advocates um, is, is almost dismissive. What do you suggest that young activists do to not only become these like little you know it's just like oh look you're on the front cover of time magazine shh now be quiet the adults are talking you know like you must yeah. have seen it so many times in your career I'd love for you to tell me maybe
3: like a story or share something with you. no definitely I think adults usually see young people and their activism as something that can be clapped at, or, you know, you can pat the young person in the back, applaud their activism, um, and then say, okay, let the adults or the, let the, let those who hold the power decide what will actually happen with your demands or, or the ideas that you're proposing. Uh, this has been happening for many years and many decades, um, but I think more than millennials, Gen Zers are not ready to take this as an answer. And I think perhaps they're more brave than we are in terms of also standing their ground and asking for accountability from those who hold power. I also see a fundamental shift, Nalufar, in the way that these two generations view power. And I think that uh, baby boomers uh, and the generations before us saw power as something that is very exclusive That is limited to a few people, you know, exercised in secrecy, behind closed doors, sort of men in suits, making the decisions for the rest of the world. But Gen Z really sees power as something very fluid, very um, out there, very transparent. They they see power in mobilisation, not in institutionalisation.
0: In everything that Jayatma and me spoke about, This, to me, was everything. The wealth gap is absolutely intrinsic to the power gap between old and young people. But finally, the I'm big, you're small, I'm right, you're wrong, and there's nothing you can do about it situation is being disrupted. Time and again, millennials and Gen Zers have shown that they can mobilise for a call to action in their millions.
3: One of the things that I always talk to young people about when I meet them, when we discuss about these frustrations is that when we embark on movements, as much as sometimes we, can, we can't we can stand the systems, um, we have to also find ways how to work through the systems themselves. And as much as we sort of protest outside the parliaments or on the roads and, and demand for that change, we also need to make sure that we as a generation are empowered to enter into the formal political arena, run for political office, create that change within our own political parties, within our own parliaments, municipalities, if we are to sustain that change.
0: So now I want the gossip. (laughs) I want to know of a real-life situation in which you encountered this generational
3: gap. One of the things that happened to me, Um, Very early in my term, I was trying to get an event that I was doing accessible to people living with disabilities and people who speak other languages other than English. So I was pushing really hard. And one day I got a call from this very senior UN official who told me in the same words, you just got here. I was here for 30 years and do you think by just pushing and writing emails you will be able to create this change? Mm-hmm. Just try, keep trying and maybe one day you will get there but you know, don't don't try too much and he was really trying to sort of discourage me for pushing for that change. But I remember having some really powerful allies within the system itself who helped me bring about that change. And since then, we have always done events at the UN which are accessible to, to every young person in their diversity. So I think by growing up in a world that is so affected by these multifaceted, multidimensional challenges. Everywhere we look, we see crises, conflicts. Now, I was born into a country affected by a 30-year long war, and, and 20 years of my life, I lived in a war. I think it's the same for you as well. I know many young people who had to Live through that experience, not by choice, but because they were born into it. And we lived through the financial crises, we through lived through a climate crisis, now we are living through a pandemic. And I think this definitely gives us a lot of perspective on things that really matter in terms of the work we do, and how important that every single thing we do has to be intersectional and has to be equally accessible to everyone around the world.
0: What do you think um, that we as young people, as Millennials and Gen Z and Gen Alpha, because they're coming, (laughs) what should should we all be doing to make the world more equitable generationally?
3: I think the answer in theory is quite simple. And, And I think the challenge is how to realize that in the real world. The answer for me is sharing power. I think the answer lies not in one generation, but the answer lies in little bits, of bits and pieces in different generations. We really need to come together and put that pieces of the puzzle together in order to find that magic answer that is going to solve the world's problems. I also think that as we see increased polarization among countries, between countries, within countries, across generations, between generations, within generations. We also need bridge builders. And I I very strongly believe, for an example, my life's purpose is to be a bridge builder, to bring the two extremes of a question together, to be able to go to one side, explain the plight of the other side, to be able to go to the other side, explain the concerns and the issues and the fears and the frustrations of the other side, being able to bring both of these groups into one room, into one table, into one conversation, trying to find not the least common denominator, but the most common denominator, and to be able to even if not find solutions, at least to create conditions to have a conversation about the solutions. Uh, This is is my life's purpose, and I'm honoured and privileged to do that from within the UN, working in partnership hand-in-hand with with young people around the world.
0: Jayathmal Vukramanayaka, thank you so much for talking to me.
3: Thanks for having me
2: now.
0: There's no doubt in my mind that if we are to restore balance into the wealth system of our world, we have to fix the problem of wealth accumulation. And that means picketing, marching and sitting across tables, demanding change at our voting booths and desktops. The haves and the have-nots, them and us. For far too long, wealth has been protected by laws which benefit the few at the expense of the many, and that dynamic is not sustainable. The rich influence power through their money, but we, the people, we can start to level the playing field using our collective voice to demand change to systems that condone economic injustice. Whatever way you choose to measure it, polarization can only happen when you see another group that doesn't look or sound like you and think of them as less than you. But maybe, and this absolutely comes out of everything my three guests have told me, maybe the problem of intergenerational polarisation is one that we don't have to look anywhere else but a mirror to overcome. We can all remember what it was like to be young, and if we're lucky, we might see old age. Drawing from that, we need to show more empathy and understanding of the needs of those groups who we once were and one day will become. I feel like we need to be more giving and more demanding of these other versions of ourselves. Maybe then we'll be able to have more meaningful dialogue. That's our episode. What did you think? Do you still want to eat the rich or are you ready to break bread with them? Tweet us at Doha Debates or me, I'm at Nelifer and I'm always super interested to hear from you. Here's one more request. Please write us a review of the show. I know, I know, you don't have time, but it really helps spread the word about what we're doing. Course Correction is written and produced by me, Nellifer Hidayat. Editorial and production assistance comes from foreign policy, with producers Sarah Kendall, Simone Perez, and Ruzi Julin. The managing director of FP Studios is Rob Sachs. The show is brought to you by Doha Debates, which is a production of Qatar Foundation, our executive producers are JFIT Weeks, Amjad Atallah, and Jiga Mehta. Join us for the next episode of Course Correction, wherever you get your podcasts.